it's it's American, but it goes deeper than that. It goes back to medieval times when you had uh, two barons that would have you know dispute about something, so each would churn out as much gold as they could to get the best knight champion to fight for their cause. Welcome to Pros and Coms. In this podcast, I talk to people about their personal and professional stories, uncovering the different ways and common themes of resonating with an audience. After all, communication is essentially storytelling. I'm Maria Ginai, and today I'll be talking to Mike Galsworthy. Mike is a scientist and political activist. He's been passionate about advocating science, breaking down key events in the political landscape by the online communities he's built since the 2016 Brexit referendum. Now the UK has left the EU, he wants to help Britain recapture its role and respect within the European science environment. So Mike, walk me through your career and your, I guess, life in general. Well, let's start with my like science career. So I, I did my degree in, in natural sciences. This was at Cambridge. So it was a big pick and mix course. And that's why I chose it, because um, it's sick form. I really, really um, liked science, but lots of different areas of science. And I didn't want to pick, you know, one, you know, narrow area. So the, the, the natural sciences pick and mix course is what I went for. And then that whittled down to, in the final year, psychology. And um, I went from that directly into a PhD. So I was at the end of university, there was all you know these companies doing the milk round. Do you want to be a consultant in this or do you want to go into bank? I was looking at that. But then there was a visiting professor who was talking about genetics and psychology and studying genes for psychology. And I thought, whoa. These are like my my two loves from my um, uh, university courses, and you can do the two together. That's got to be cutting edge stuff. So I said, "Are you doing like PhDs in this?" And he said, "Well, yeah, that, that's that's why I'm here to kind of like hunt for students who might be interested." So I said, "Sign me up," and he did sign me up because I I started that summer. I actually started in in the August, so I went straight from a degree into a PhD just a few months later and did my PhD in behaviour genetics, you know, how genes influence behaviour, first human behaviour and childhood development, but then animal behaviour. So then after completing that PhD, I actually went to to Switzerland to do, you know, pure animal behaviour and and the the genes and, and inheritance patterns behind it. And then uh, from there, for a uh, for romantic reasons, shall we say, I uh, went with my partner to her home country of Slovenia, where I then transferred across into um, medical bioinformatics, providing the life science advice for a bunch of programs. So then I picked up programming skills myself, and then that led me into pan-European programs um, assessing how the European Union had funded life sciences, how that breaks down in categories, what had been the outputs from all of that funding. So this was then my first foray into science policy. And from that, I sort of moved back and forth between sort of like health policy and science policy on different projects, which 
then brought me back to the UK to work at the um, uh, University College London in the Department of Applied Health Research. So then, as I was doing applied health research, um, which is basically health policy, I was writing more on the side about science. I like the fact that if you, you could write articles, and um, the turnaround time on them would be much, much quicker than, than a academic publication. So then I thought, who's, go who's going to listen to all my science policy ideas? And I got in touch with Scientists for Labour because I didn't see that there was any science advice associated with any other political party, and I, and I was left-leaning myself. And they said that uh, they really liked what I was doing. They wanted to um, take me into the executive, but I'd have to become a Labour Party member in order to do that. So I, I had a chew on that. Then I decided I would. And then it was in 2015 when Labour actually lost that general election that I then said to the others and scientists for Labour, look, we can't help Labour now for another five years or so, but there's going to be a referendum coming up. We should spin out a new thing. We should call it Scientists for EU. And one of my colleagues in that group, Rob, who was actually based in Hong Kong at the time, said, I love that idea. Um, you better get sorting out the logo because I'm already start, I've already set up a Facebook page and I've started inviting friends. And so then he and I just went like, the blazers on that over that weekend got 2,500 followers over that weekend on Facebook, which was, you know, unheard of compared to where we were before. And then we opened up the Twitter channel as well. And a scientist, the science community loved it. And that's when it took off then, May 8th, uh, 2015. Yeah, I remember, I can't remember exactly when I joined it, but I remember seeing it on Facebook. And yeah, I was in Edinburgh at the time, I was doing a postdoc and you know, I found this and I was like, this is exactly talking to me because I am a scientist and I do want to stay. And there was all this information which I like hadn't known before. So, yeah, I was really excited about Scientists for the EU when I saw it. So it came about because of the referendum. But how has it changed throughout the years? I mean, it's coming up to five years now. So yeah. how, is, how has it changed in terms of the focus and like maybe the sort of content you put out? What has that journey been like for Scientists for the EU? At the beginning, it was very much focused on the science community. We didn't know whether the science community was predominantly pro-Remain or pro-Leave. We guessed pro-Remain, just, you know, knowing the people around us. Um, and we wanted to win the argument within the science community, rally the science community, um, and also, through all of that, build the case about the importance of science in the public mind. Because um, within those who were doing science policy at the time were getting dead frustrated with the government that we were languishing at the bottom of the G8 for science funding. And we were doing all these lobbying efforts behind closed doors with politicians and they weren't changing anything. So I thought, right, we need to get science public so we need the science community to be a living breathing thing on social media and then communicate more widely so at the beginning it was very much about everyone putting on a scientist for eu twibbon stories from the science community about what was going on building an advisory board which was top scientists and then getting those top scientists to write 
as a scientist for you collective in the Times and in other places. So it was a, it was very, very science focused at the beginning. And then we found out that scientists were like 90% on board with Remain. And we'd sort of won the argument very early on from the science community, which is interesting because Dominic Cummings wanted to run the referendum campaign on the NHS and science. It's still there on the Vote Leave Twitter handle. Um, take back our money, invest in science and the NHS. And they set up a Scientists for Britain campaign where Michael Gove's ex-special advisor came into the gang to help them out. And then we did lots of debates between Scientists for EU and Scientists for Britain on these issues. And, and they were all very cordial and, and everything. And I was proud of the fact that they were informative and good-spirited and educational um, compared to the wider Brexit debate. But it was very, very, very science-focused in the early days. Uh, but then it, as more and more interest from outside the science community came into um, our Facebook group in particular, because we weren't just sharing science posts, um, we were sharing lots of sort of entertaining memes as well, lots of, uh, lots of joke sort of cartoons or, or slightly risque takes, which I always, you know, uh, had fear that people would say, scientists, you know, you, you shouldn't be doing that, you know, this, this, this doesn't fit. But people loved it. Um, and also because Britain, stronger in Europe, was so boring and dull and, you know, the, all, all the posts that came out of their channel were kind of like by centralised decree and looked like it. And then their content was trolled. It had the bejesus trolled out of it. And so you couldn't find any supportive comments under their posts, right? Whereas we cleaned out like half the trolls, you know, the ones that were just going out, out, out. And then the other ones that had more intelligent critiques of some of the things we were saying, we developed enough of a community that our audience was answering all of those questions and, you know, knocking it back. And then it was that community development that we really, really had in the early days, which is still there and has carried on all the way through, but investing in that community development was important. But over time, Scientists for EU, after the referendum, um, and then after we uh, went into all the, the fallout that had happened in science, then Scientists for EU started building with other campaigns, this then became People's Vote, on making you know the generic arguments for why um, for what was the broad damage of Brexit, the Brexit folks so far, what were the problems coming up, and why we deserved, you know, a say on whatever deal came back. So Scientists for EU and the spin-out that I made, which was, you know, NHS against Brexit, because I wanted to capture some of that, that built into uh, the People's Vote campaign as two of the founding campaigns of the People's Vote. And that... Um, very awkward, frothy alliance was then what Scientist for EU was part of. And we did a lot, lot more work on trying to mobilize grassroots, support grassroots and their competence on social media, particularly on Facebook, offer a lot of training there and build up a lot of the, uh, the logistical support for all of the big marches. So the science flavor you know, got got a lot thinner and the the size of the channel was basically used for a lot of mobilisation of that common cause. Then there was the general election of 2019 and the focus that we mainly had was on the NHS for that. 
And then in 2020, I shifted a lot of effort into uh, building up March for Change or rebuilding March for Change, which was a spin-out we made in 2019. I can tell you about that in a bit. But now that we've actually come out, I'm coming back to scientists for e EU with a focus on reinvigorating it to be a long-term campaign about rebuilding the science links between the UK and the rest of Europe, not just the EU, the rest of Europe, the European research area and all the structures in there. And now that we've you know, cut ourselves out of a lot of policy making uh, on the European level, how we can rebuild to sort of recapture our position there and build on that European spirit of teamwork. And, uh, you know, ideally, I would like us to rejoin at some point, but um, the direction of travel is the most important thing, that it's about kindness, responsibility, collaboration, teamwork. That All of that essence um, is, is what we really need to fight to recapture. And that's really important, especially in science, is teamwork and collaboration, because yeah. that's how science gets done. You know, collaboration across the world, across countries, across different departments. So collaboration is just so important to science. And I think that's something that really appealed to scientists in Scientists for the EU. And what also appealed was, like you said, the uh, the memes and the, the lighthearted content at the beginning. And again, that's that's really interesting because a lot of people still have this uh idea that scientists are sort of really drab and dull and kind of serious and you know i um used to make uh, videos on, on my youtube channel lots of different bits of science, con science content and one of them was a vlog where i just took my phone around the, a day in the lab and then you know we had a pub quiz that night so we went to the pub and so many people are like, oh my God, I didn't know scientists had fun. I was like, of course, we're yeah. humans. Of course, <laughs> yeah. we, enjoy, we yeah. enjoy things. We're not just super serious. Not as much fun as, as Rick and Morty, but we definitely do have some fun. <laughs> yeah. So, we'll I mean, th so this, this is one of the things too, because um, it's quite eye-opening when you first set up a channel like that and you get some people saying, oh, you're all on the EU gravy train or... Um, one of the comments that I liked the most was, yeah, what's science good for? All you do is study the number of fleas on an aardvark's ass. And I thought, I, I love that. And I thought, that's fascinating. Wait a sec, I know exactly where this comes from, right? This comes from the tabloids, you know, the Daily Express or the Daily Mail. And the only science they report, apart from dietary stuff, is, is the joke science, you know, the, the cats that meow in different accents or what have you. And people who read this think, is that where our funding goes as taxpayers into this kind of joking around? Actually, what happens is these are usually scientists that decide to do little side projects. It doesn't cost the taxpayer anything, of course, because who's, who's going to fund something like that? But they do little side projects. And then these are the things that then get picked up by the news. But it gives uh, the wider public or some of the wider public completely the wrong impression about where the bulk of science funding goes. So um, you get tons of little insights when you actually open up the science community and say, we're all scientists, we're all chatting on this channel to the wider public. And it's there's a lot of public out there that do actually genuinely love science and love being in a science environment with other scientists and absorbing all of that. My dad's like that. He loves reading science books. He did history 
um, at university uh, before going on to do some engineering jobs. But he has always loved science right throughout his life. And what I'm I'm proud of with Britain is that we've got a very sciencey culture. You know, we've got a long history in it. We're very open to it. We we don't have anything like the kind of science deniers that, that you could see in the States, where it's also extremely political and frothy. And, and I think that the way that we do science and our culture in science is something that I'm proud of. And I want more people to not just have within the UK, but also feel ownership of. I, I don't subscribe to this model of kind of like, support us, we are scientists, and we will make the world better for you, and you will say thank you. It's kind of like, because that's that's patronising. That is, we, we, you give us your money and we will give something to you. But what people really want is they want the opportunities to be involved themselves or for their kids to set up businesses in this area. You know, they want to be part of, of you know, their local science story or, or the national science story. They want involvement in all of that. And so that's why I think... It's dead important that, that science as a, as a culture really, really opens up to the public and involves the public because, you know, I've seen from our own channels when that happens that that's, that's a really, really lovely thing and it's fun discussions. Yeah, I know there's a lot of emphasis, I mean, definitely over the past, oh God, I'm going to make myself feel really old now, maybe like 10 years since I've been in sort of the science world is this focus on public engagement, STEM ambassadors, um, lots of different events, lots of, you know, different funding now available for people who want to do public engagement. And as you said, that's so important because, you know, if you have an us and them culture, which is something we've seen a lot in a lot of different spheres recently. Yeah, think think town and gown in every university, right? Yeah, and you just, it just makes people so... um, distant from it that they can't even relate to how it might affect them but then if they can't even relate to how it might affect them then why would they be interested and then why would they be supportive of this thing so yeah it's um definitely really important to to open it up yeah so the fundamental sort of thing is um that why should people in this country back science sort of what's in it for them And there's two levels. One is, you know, just a straight up transactional, but there's another one which is emotional. You know, I back scientists because I find this all fascinating. And furthermore, I think scientists have got my back. And furthermore, I feel involved and I feel that this is opportunities for me and my kids. That's how you've got to see it. And um, I mean, if you ask, you know, anyone that you sort of like, off the street or whatever, who in society they trust. It's doctors and nurses that, that come out first because they have contact with them and they know that these are people that take care of them. They've got an interest in them. So, you know, they can they can rely on them. And I think that what we really need to be doing is, is having our universities and, you know, our scientists engage that much more with society. I think, actually, there are so many postdocs kicking around you know, trying to get their next grants, you know, knowing that, you know, if they miss out on two more grants, then they're probably out. But you've got that wealth of postdocs, and then you've got a whole load of um, businesses, small businesses, or, or, or public endeavours, like uh, local council endeavours, where people can actually do with the analytical or statistical input. I think there should be a whole grant system, which pairs up um, 
farmers and small businesses and startups and local council efforts, you know, with the whole pool of postdocs that we've got. Because when you actually work alongside someone who's a scientist or a farmer, you learn about what they do and you have that much more respect for what they do. That's the best way to start getting in the, in, in the culture, to, to weave all of those together. Totally, totally. So you mentioned March for Change earlier. Yes. Tell me a bit about that. Right. Um, March for Change actually started in, in 2019. Um, and it was during a time when the People's Vote campaign was sort of straining internally between those that were uh, leading it, who were mainly media people, and a lot of the grassroots who were very, very unhappy with the lack of support that they were getting in all of their local groups. And because I knew the local groups, local pro-E groups very well, because I'd gone around and given so many talks there, um, I paired up with uh, Tom Brafato of uh, Britain for Europe, which had you know, started from the grassroots and then it sort of decamped into people's vote. So we set up um, another sort of campaign within it, which was about trying to represent the grassroots more and also strengthen them up, you know, get get funding to, to the grassroots more, push them forward more as spokespeople. And because we thought if a referendum was going to come down the line, then it's dead important that in each and every area in the UK, you've got local groups that that um, powerful themselves at communicating with their local communities. That's the thing. That's, that's what changes people's minds. It's not what they see on you know TV being preached down to them. It's people like them in their communities that can make the arguments. That's what they sort of uh, listen to most. So that's what we wanted to strengthen up. So we did a couple of marches on that. We, um, we, we built structures around that also to engage with um, all the prorogation protests that we were doing spontaneously when Boris Johnson was trying to uh, shut down Parliament temporarily. And then so that's um, a sort of activist campaign that we had set up. And so then after the general election 2019, um, I thought, right, scientists for EU is not going to be able to be a broad-based platform for lots of other different types of campaigns, which is based on the, the grassroots or activists. So we reinvigorated March for Change. And what it has done is, first of all, we set up a network of local newspapers around the country based on um, those activist groups. So we did that in collaboration with Byline Times. Um, and so that's that's Peter Dukes's operation. So we've now got Yorkshire Bylines, Northeast Bylines, West Country Bylines, West England Bylines, Kent Bylines, East Anglia Bylines is coming online soon. Oh God, I've, I've, I've missed one or two, but you get the idea, right? So we've actually encouraged citizen journalism in all these different parts of the country, and we at March for Change provide the, like funding and structure and training for them all to do that. Then the next big project um, we did was we um, had been calling for public inquiry into the coronavirus crisis. You know, we could see that this government were getting it wrong early. We've got these links with, with public health and with science. And so we said, right, we need a public inquiry to hold this into account. We got scientists and public health experts to back it. Uh, we got champions out across broadcast media. We got a petition that went over, you know, 100,000. And then 
people who signed that petition gave us funding that allowed us to do polling that showed that most people do actually, this was back in the summer, want a public inquiry and they want it before the winter because they're fearful of the second wave. And they were right. Um, but Boris Johnson kept saying no to that. So we decided to get together a group of MPs and form an official all-party parliamentary group uh, the all-party parliamentary group on coronavirus it's now registered as such and it ran an inquiry over the summer every week it had a new session we covered all the different areas of um, care homes of the breakup of public health england of test and trace we had the british medical association nhs providers all of these different lead groups um, give us witness testimony as well as bereaved families and long COVID sufferers. And just today, in fact, we've done another long COVID session, um, which was watched by tens of thousands of people um, uh, online. And we've had reports come out of those. And we will continue now to build again for a judge-led public inquiry in order to handle all of the things that, that we can't handle just as a group of MPs. So... That was the second mission of March for Change. And then the third and final one was we were dead set against a UK-US trade deal with Donald Trump for all the reasons that it was going to be rushed through. Uh, the terms of it are, are right against what the British public would accept. And so we were petitioning against that. And then we adopted under our wing the campaign Save British Farming. And again, we said March for Change is a platform for activism. We provide support, we provide media exposure, we help generate funds and, and provide organisation. So we took in Save British Farming and did tractor demonstrations that happened twice in Parliament and um, uh, up north in, in uh, Northallerton and, and Stokesley and down south in, in Swindon and um, in, in Wales as well, we had demonstrations. So we had tractor demonstrations through lots and lots of different towns throughout the country, all about save British European food standards. This is what the public want. Guarantee that you're you're not going to um, sell us out on that front. And this is something that we'll actually continue campaigning on throughout this year because the government haven't put in those reassurances, even though you know, it has, of course, to date, spook them hugely. So our, our strand obviously complemented what lots of other organisations were doing, Global Justice Now and Trade Movement for Justice, the NFU, National Farmers Union itself, as well as lots of um, uh, celebs like Jamie Oliver. You know, there was a whole front of lots of different campaigns pushing on that. And um, I think it's unlikely now that... Um, the UK will do a trade deal with Joe Biden before the timing uh, for this Congress being able to approve it runs out in, in the spring. But still, we're, we're going to be campaigning on that issue because it's it's fundamental and it's important and people care about it. So, yeah, that's, that's, that's my other strand of activity. Yeah, you're a very busy man. <laughs> so you do, I mean, I look at your content through uh, Scientists for the EU. I think I follow uh, March for Change as well. But a lot of your recent videos have been, um, you know, commentary on Brexit and COVID and all these things. And they're quite in-depth. I know you did a, I think it was like a 40-minute one on the trade deal that we got uh, just before Christmas. Was it 40 minutes? Yeah. It was 43 minutes, I think. Um, yeah. So it was while I was eating my breakfast. I had a very long breakfast watching it. Yeah. So 
Obviously, these are very in-depth. You need to know what you're talking about. What sort of work goes into these videos and pieces of content? Right. Well, I, I do all of my videos live now. When I started out, I would record it and then get frustrated with the recording and then do some more recordings. And then out of the best one, I would take it. And then I would sometimes even cut out some of the ums as well as little sentences that I felt were distracting. And then I would put it out. And for some of the shorter ones, I'd subtitle it as well. And that is a lot of work. I noticed on the alt-right and sometimes the far-right, they were very good at communicating with their base by doing a lot of live videos, by doing a lot of streaming, uh, whether that be, um, that's how I discovered Periscope, for example, which is, you know, which feeds into Twitter. It's going to be discontinued now as Twitter picks up its own. And so I thought, I'll have a play with that. You know, I've, I've given so many talks now and done so many videos that sometimes if you want to respond to what's going on today rapidly, you just need to switch on your phone and start talking. But you also need it to be structured because otherwise, um, and this, this is a failing of many people sort of in, in the right, you know, they turn it on, they turn on their phone and they say, yeah, we're just waiting to collect more people. And then they go on a ra rambling chat, you know, they still get lots of people watching them because people like being talked to in, in that sort of like cosy, it's me chatting to you kind of way. So they like that vibe and they'll be very tolerant of actual quality information coming through in a very slow drip, drip way. But what I want to do is I want to make it short enough that people get a whole package um, of it, unless, of course, I have to do, you know, a mega thing for a, you know, huge trade deal, but discursive enough that it feels cosy. So what I usually do is I do all the research that I want and I jot down notes. And then I think, what's the narrative arc here? What's what's the beginning, you know, the, the, the hook line at the beginning of the video? What's the conclusion at the end? And then what are the key arguments that I want in the middle and how does that follow a logical flow? And so then I'll then I'll write myself, you know, a, a bunch of notes in a notebook or on a piece of paper, you know, I want to talk about this and this and this and this. I won't script it out so that I read it. It will just sort of be a series of talking points that I want to hop from one to the other to the other to the other, wrap it up. And you mentioned previously about getting trolls and negative comments on on your content and yeah. anyone having i mean a social media account but definitely if you've got a platform you're going to be subject to those things because that's the way of the internet and anonymity so how do you go about you know dealing with that because obviously it's not very nice and yeah. you know it's it's a real problem and there's so many different ways. Some people say, no, you should um, engage with people to try and change their mind. But that can be very, you know, exhausting, especially if they're just trolling. Mm. So how do you deal with those types of comments? I get very, very few trolls these days. I don't, I think most of them have given up or something. But, um, <laughs> but I don't anymore. I do notice, however, and this worries me, that... Um, People um, who tend to get trolled more um, are those that are, that are less sort of high profile oftentimes and women much, much, much more 
get trolled much, much, much more than guys. And, and that, that annoys me and frustrates me. Um, generally speaking, if you've got trolls who are just thoroughly nasty um, and um, just in pure attack mode, and, and you can you can see that's the case, always block them, you know, delete them from your Facebook or block them, you know, especially if it's in an environment where you're trying to build community, community around a cause, community around your own ability to discuss, you know, if there are people in there who are just going to try and poison it, you know, ax them out because that's, that's not constructive, so get rid of them. For those that, um, that are asking sort of questions, maybe in a snarky way, I mean, at the moment, I usually find that my followers will engage with them and I don't have to. You know, they, they will, you know, take up those discussions and sometimes they will take up those discussions in a, can, can be in a nasty way themselves. In which case, you should, um, you know, hop in and say, that tone isn't good, da-da-da, we always respect opinions on here. And you'd be surprised what kind of responses you get to that because... A lot of people, they on all sides of any argument, get loaded up on um, their their preconceived ideas of what you're about, and and fire off criticisms sort of like far too early. And if you just respond with a you know a gentle tone or a curious tone or something that shows basic respect, then um, you'll find that a lot of people um, respect that back. And that's, that's a very nice, you know, thing to, to have happen. And you feel good for that. What I have found that I've done a few times that has worked nicely is when I've had some people troll me and then sometimes I go to their pages, like their Facebook page or their Twitter account, and I see, you know, what, what, are, you, what are you about? You know, what do you like? What, what drives you? Oftentimes there are people who have in their bio on these kind of things all about, you know, uh, tolerance and respect and kind of like and not getting wound up and things like that and then you contrast it with what they've said and you think oh my god but other times you, you see interesting bits of information about someone I saw one who was kind of like a uh, black belt in, in karate so I said oh by the way I just noticed kind of like you're black belt in karate so am I what style um, also my son's just passed his brown belt and, and he was like, oh, well done, that little fellow. And then we had a conversation about karate, completely diffused the, the, the political topic that we'd been, you know, arguing about, completely turned it around. So by finding those kind of things and finding, you know, where you can touch base in another, you know, if you've got the time and effort to spend on it, then do once in a while because it does weirdly restore a little bit of faith in humanity um, and you don't always have to be in trenches despairing at the people on the other side. And talking of people on the other side, on the other side in air quotes, you know, one of the shock things about the referendum was that not a lot of people who voted Remain saw that the people who were voting Leave were there and why they did it you know we have echo chambers on social media because you just surround yourself with people who think like you because that's naturally what you do Mm. and it's you know you do that in real life but it's amplified on social media so what sort of stuff do you do to try and you know come outside of of that chamber and try and get some more viewpoints and have uh, a more you know 
well-rounded view of of topics do you do anything in particular to to counter that yeah i mean um i think with regard to um bubbles i think that was much more the case a few years back and i think the brexit referendum forced those bubbles to collide and then suddenly there were forums of argument and then you discovered you know there were those other bubbles that existed and it was it was quite you know uh, shocking and horrifying to many people. I mean, I had leavers on my channel say, oh my God, do, do you even exist? Is this real? I don't know anyone who's going to vote Remain. And similarly, I had some of my friends who were saying, my, I don't know, uh, I think it's great that you're doing this science thing, but people really aren't going to vote to leave, are they? And I was like, God, you've, you've got no idea how some people sort of um, uh, live and think on this issue. So, I think when that all opened up, there was there was a lot more discussion there. And of course, you know, once you get into the campaigning environment, what I was doing a lot in um, 2019 was I had for a while a social media intelligence unit that I sort of set up, sort of spun out from scientists for EU. It's now sort of decamped to Alliance for Europe, which is another thing that I've helped found. But mapping out what was the conversation in you know all of the leave facebook groups and there were tons of them um as well as mapping out you know all of our own community and what were the memes doing best in that community so i very very thoroughly studied you know what all the different conversations were and what all the different drivers of them were because you know it is of course very important in in any persuasion campaign to actually to understand it what do we do now um about making sure that there's better quality conversation. I think that I hold the BBC uh, predominantly and, and some other mainstream media um, responsible for a lot of the tone of how things have gone around Brexit, but then also continuing and on sort of left-right distinctions for any cultural war kind of stuff or any issue like that. I think we have become polarised partly because the BBC, for example, will do a debate which is short, it's five minutes, one person from one side, one person from the other side, the BBC sort of chairs it fairly, and then they just throw sound bites at each other, you know, X amount of nurses have been hired, no, that figure is wrong, and then the you know, chair says, well, there we go. They disagree about the number of nurses. And then what the is the take home for the audience? Whereas what you actually need is you need professionals in this area, um, you know, a group of them and a longer form discussion. So you can see what are the areas of agreement and what are the areas of disagreement in people who are actually expert in, in that area. What you had, for example, in the referendum debate, um, and this has been mapped um, and it's been well documented, is the BBC would repeatedly get on old white guys, predominantly Tories, to argue about everything from farming and fishing to science and technology to trade to what have you, right? The whole, the whole gamut. Whereas what I was trying to do with Scientists for You and what I was, was fully expecting to happen was that there would be long-form debates within science, and within the farming industry, and within education, and within all these different domains, as each and every sector sort of worked out what were the pros and cons of either staying or leaving, right? Um, 
but it didn't happen like that. And I think it was lazy journalism from the BBC and other uh, such broadcast media who basically, instead of doing that, that, that deep non-partisan educational foundation, they rather go for the you know, the infotainment of champion versus champion, go. So I think our very approach to debate in this country is fundamentally unlike science. In science, we don't do this. In science, we pull data and come to consensus conclusions that we can build on. So that's partly one of the reasons why, you know, I think that the, the way that we think and the way that we behave in science, which has produced so many incredible advances in the world around us, is, is a better model of doing things um, than the uh, age-old sort of like combative argumentation, ar arguing philosophers' style. Yeah, who can shout the loudest? Yeah, who, who's got the best hook line that people remember? Oh, my God, yeah. <laughs> so... What do you think the future of UK science is now that we're outside of the EU, we're trying to figure everything out with maybe some, you know, links to the EU for projects? What do you think our science landscape is going to be in the next few years? Right. I think there's a domestic game and there's an international game. In the domestic game, I am very pleased that this government is now talking about how great we are at science and we need to invest in science and science can even be used for levelling up. This is fantastic. And, you know, the EU had the same idea a few years back, but let's like put that to the side. The point is, as I was saying before, in terms of the, the cultural enrichment between science and the, and the wider country, um, and all parts of it, that is a good and healthy thing. And I think we should be encouraging that. I think we should be putting a lot of funding and capacity into universities being engines of growth in their local areas and how they can get involved in that. I mean, remember, many of the more modern universities were set up in order to support local textile industries or local manufacturing industries. So regathering some of that role for um, uh, research institutions in our universities, I think would be good and healthy. Because unlike big businesses that can say, oh, we've decided we're not going to be in the country anymore, universities are, are, are deeply anchored into the culture of, of the local area around them. So I think with an increasing budget uh, for science and innovation, um, an increasing awareness of the role of science and innovation in driving the economy, I think with an increasing deluge of data and need for people who can handle data, this all sets the right conditions for science being adopted more widely in our culture, driving more of our, our, our domestic you know, economic efforts. So that's the domestic uh, game. Internationally, we've kind of been pulled out of the Ferrari that we helped build and cast you know, on the roadside, because we did forge um, that that science program, uh, FP, you know, six, FP seven, Horizon 2020, we had a strong, strong hand in the development of the European Research Council um, and its grants. Um, we have a lot of design and a lot of the infrastructure of the science program. And also we've got a foot in the um, uh, European Space Agency and, and the satellite programs. And we've kind of now that we've 
you know, had Brexit, our policy voice has gone from those. And my fear is that this government want to get competitive with Europe and maybe kind of um, snub Europe and try and build alliances with, with other countries globally in a sort of tit-for-tat kind of way. Um, but that would be pragmatically very, very silly because we would then partially let rot networks uh, and structures that we've invested so much in over the last few decades. So I think the major challenge here is to think about Britain's role in the world and how we can be a link piece between European programs and other drivers of science globally and how we can recapture our role and respect within the European science environment. And that needs to be sold to Brexiteers in government in the right way. But if we really genuinely want to maintain the very best of British science, it is that, you know, we are team players and we're very good at being team leaders within those teams. Um, and that is something that we shouldn't lose. That's something that we should actually build upon. Uh, and also, um, most sensible people, even those that, that, that voted for Brexit, want us to have good relations with our continent, with our neighbours, you know, those those 27 other countries around, um, are good, sensible Western democracies that are close by, that have good high levels of science. We do want to um, engage with them and build with them, and science is one of the best ways in order to have those first strands of diplomacy upon which you can build. So there's a big, big mission there as well in terms of, you know, rebuilding our place in our continent and rebuilding that sense of um, uh, camaraderie and um, family with the continent. Science can be, you know, one of the first areas to be, to be engaging in that healing and rebuilding process. Definitely. Now, a lot of people will have felt the effects of the last five years, no matter what side you you came down on in the referendum. And, you know, it was already a matter of a lot of people were feeling quite apathetic towards politics mm. and thinking, what's even the point of voting or having an interest in that? And I felt that to some extent as well. So what would you say to people about that to to try and, you know, motivate them? I mean, how do you stay motivated to, you know, keep fighting the fight? Yeah, my basic philosophy there is um, life is long and history is even longer. Um, and the year 2030 will come and the year 2040 will come. I, I fully expect to be alive at both time points. And if I were to look back and think, oh, I could have actually been doing something for the last 20 years that would help where we are now. That's the, that's the way that I look at it. Um, I mean, to a degree, if, if you look at the Brexit campaign, you know, they, they started up, you know, was 25 years ago? Nigel Farage, you know, the, the, the outsider, the non-politician has actually been a politician for 25 years and tried to go for the role of MP seven times over, you know, he's been plugging away at this for a long, long time before he got what he wanted. So, um, 
you know, the, the, the pendulums of history, you know, will keep swinging. Um, and so for me, there's always a case to be starting to build something now that is going to be important and useful and will be much more powerful in two years from now, five years from now, 10 years from now. You know, it's always worth the investment. And if you know there's communities of people that, that think like you, there's also really good journey to be had because were it not for everything that we've been through recently, I wouldn't have met many of the people that I've met. We wouldn't have started forming all the communities that we have. And this is not just, you know, campaigners in London. This is like real communities, you know, up in Yorkshire or, or, or up in Newcastle or down in, in, in the West Country. You know, you, you go and visit there and there's there's teams of, you know, people and there's there's that community spirit growing and we built those local campaigns and now we're building the citizen journalism on the backs of that you know and a lot of the values that are being fought for um no one was really fighting for them before sort of 2016 they were sort of taken for granted but um they are worth fighting for so so for me to to summarize the two things are that you know life is long and um so why not spend time building what you believe in? Um, and the second one is when you do engage in all of that, you tend to meet people that you like. Oh, that's a beautiful note. I love that. So through your very varied career, what is the most valuable thing you've learned? I think probably um, that your outlook on life is always the most important thing. So you were asking before, you know, how do I keep my spirits up and all of that, you know, because um, you can, it can get really frustrating, especially when you see some of the BS that, that some politicians come out with and you think there's, there's 650 in the country, in a country of 65 million. How did you get to that top spot talking this kind of rubbish? That is, you know, you get wound up. Um, so... You will eat yourself up inside if you um, feel the need to correct every mistake that you see on social media. If you feel the need to sort of take to heart everything um, that goes wrong with this country. Basically, you can only do as much as you can do and you should enjoy the fact that you've got opportunities and freedoms to say it and you should look out for others that you can, um, whose company you enjoy in, in pursuing some of the same things. So it comes down to kind of like, if you've got the right outlook and enjoy what you're doing, that's the main thing that will give you fuel to do a much, much better job than if you let yourself get all angry about it and all gnarled up. Wise, wise words. And as I said before, you're a very busy man, but do you have any time to do stuff outside of you know, work outside of setting up all these things? And if so, what are they? Well, at the moment, I've got a two-year-old. Um, and because uh, we're in a lockdown, um, then her nursery times are limited. So I'm going to need to go and get her in a sec. And so I spend uh, the time that I can't work oftentimes in the park or going on little walks and things like that. But Outside lockdown, when I get free time, I always found that I really enjoyed swimming, you know, to get a complete change of world. Um, 
and just and swim, swim, swim was was always a lovely thing to do. I'm less of a walker and more of a swimmer. Yeah. And listening to music late at night, have a whiskey, listen to music, let that drown out all the crap for my brain that has collected during the day. Getting your headspace in, into different worlds is important once in a while. It, it sort of replenishes you as well. What sort of music do you like? Yeah, um, rock, bluesy rock, indie, um, alternative sort of trippy stuff. Other, any, anything that's, that's a bit otherworldly, I particularly like. Top three songs or albums or artists? I'll let you choose. Um, let's go with artists. Um, Led Zeppelin, Jimi Hendrix. What else do I keep coming back to? Uh, White Stripes. I mean, that's that's the sort of core of what I like, but then I go much sort of like wider. But those, I think, would probably best define my music tastes. So, Mike, in your opinion, what are the most important things for effective communication? I guess two things, structure and tone. Um, with the structure, you've got to think about what is it that you want to communicate? What's, what's, the, what's the one thing? What's the take home? And then you start with that, you provide evidence for that, and you sort of come back to that. And whether it's a, whether it's a short piece or a long piece, um, or even just a conversation, bearing that in mind is usually pretty useful. Uh, with tone, a lot of people don't or, or underestimate this. Um, people get an impression about what you're like just from your tone. So if you sound all kind of like agitated or, or angry or shrill or wound up, then you may be able to, you know, excite, you know, some of your hardcore bass and sort of whip them up, but you shut down a lot of people's ears to what you're saying. So, but if you seem sort of happy, relaxed in life, curious about what other people have to say, you know, and and generally comfortable in in sort of listening and talking, then that opens up much, much better discussion and much more acceptance of what you have to say. I mean, in, in any conversation, if you have a sort of disagreement with someone, they are not going to hear what you have to say while they've still got things cluttered up in their head that they want to say and they want to be heard and have respected. So one of the best things you can do to, to clear the channel of someone listening to you is to ask them what they think and then pretty much summarise it back to them to say, you know, so you mean this and this and this, right? Yeah. So then that means that and that. And they go, yes, exactly. If anyone says that to you, yes, exactly. Then suddenly they will listen to what you have to say. Brilliant. Mike, I could talk to you all day, but thank you so much for, for chatting to me. It's been really eye-opening yeah, it was fun. to see yeah. your motivations. And, and uh, yeah, I'm really excited to catch your, your new content as it comes. Yeah, and, and good luck on your whole series with this. It sounds really interesting. So keep me posted with updates too. I absolutely will. So to finish off, what one thing would you like to leave listeners with? I, I think I've prattled myself out there. So maybe just that last point that I was saying about um, communication and, um, and being 
interest in what others having to say, and then the whole sort of mood that goes with that, you know, especially after we've had, you know, a year of this coronavirus crisis, and we've got more lockdown coming up, you know, taking care of your own mood, and making sure that you seek out others and have quality interactions with others is going to be, you know, a key thing to keeping you happy and healthy. It's true, I could have talked to Mike all day. His experiences through his scientific career have helped him build an incredible, engaged online community of scientists and scientists for the EU, who are speaking up for British science. Throughout this conversation, Mike was adamant that we need to get away from the us and them mentality that we currently have, both in science and society. Instead, engaging the public and helping them have ownership over the scientific discoveries made in the UK is so important. And I liked his idea about using the skills of postdocs in business and public endeavours to help weave science into society and make it more accessible. Mike has dealt with a few strong characters on his online platforms, but by taking the time to find some common talking points, he's been able to diffuse potentially hostile situations. He's also identified the importance of empowering people at the grassroots level, and through the training, funding and support that March for Change provides, he continues to help people make their voices heard in the shaping of new policies post-Brexit. Tone and structure are the key things to consider in communicating any message, whether it's a piece of content for public consumption or a regular conversation with a pal. And as a viewer of Mike's content on social media, I can say he successfully uses both to resonate with his audience. If you liked this conversation, let me know. You can find more information about this episode by heading to the Malby website. Use the hashtag pros and comms on social media to carry on the conversation and make sure you follow Pros and Comms on your favourite podcast platform to keep up to date with new episodes. Music